Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Well, welcome back. This is a long title for a study that we're doing. The times they are a change in progressive Christianity, cancel culture, and the coming persecution. And it means a whole lot more now with what's happened this past week with high tech. Whatever you believe about whatever, Facebook and Twitter and, and YouTube that are kind of banning a lot of things that are happening. And so it, it makes it even a little bit more timely. So last week, I kind of introduced the theme to us, and I said there were six key issues that are front and central to what we as Christians believe, and then I talked about how they were attacked. And so last week, we looked at the very first one, and the first one, we started all the way back at Genesis 1, with God being the creator, and then we also went to the first commandment, and last week, the big issue was, is that God is creator, he's ruler over all things, we are accountable to him because he's our creator, but what does the culture want to do, what does society want to do? We want to be our own gods, self-expression is the greatest idol, and we talked about how people uh, just really don't want to submit to who, to who God is. And so tonight, we're going to talk about uh, the Bible, what does the Bible say about itself? So here's the truth. This is truth number two in the six truths that we're looking at over these weeks together. And so here it is. The Bible is God's inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word. Now, you may understand what authoritative and sufficient is. Let me just define the word inerrant or inerrancy. That may be a word that you're not familiar with. Basically, what we're saying is the Bible doesn't have any mistakes. The Bible does not have any errors. It's error-free in the original um, documents that we have, the original, the original autographs is what they call them. And so this whole issue of the authority of God's word, the Bible, is attacked today. And it comes in two, we're going to look at two different attacks. Okay, the first one is a, the progressive Christian attack. And we kind of defined progressive Christianity, and I gave you some names last week. The second one's more the evangelical attack that's more pragmatic. So attack number one is the progressive view. So there are those progressive Christians that would say the Bible is not inerrant. The Bible is not authoritative. We cannot be certain about what the Bible says. It brings up more questions than it gives answers. And remember I said last week, the big issue for progressive Christians is not finding answers but asking question after question after question. The joy is in asking the questions, but never be, you can never be certain about absolute truth. So that's attack number one, the progressive view. The second attack, we're not going to spend as much time on that. It's more the evangelical attack. It's, it's the pragmatic view. And the pragmatic view says... Yeah, we believe the Bible's inerrant, we believe the Bible's God's word, we believe it's, it's authoritative, but it's not sufficient to answer the questions for today. So what we need is, we need other cultural, political, sociological lenses to help us understand what's going on, okay? So where I want to start tonight is the fact that there are false teachers 
all over the place out there right now. YouTube, Facebook, websites, Christian broadcasting, all over the place. And so what does the Bible have to say about false teachers that will try to lead us astray? Well, Jeremiah 23, 16 through 17. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Do not listen to the words of the prophets who prophesy to you, filling you with vain hopes. They speak visions of their own minds, not from the mouth of the Lord. They say continually to those who despise the word of the Lord, It shall be well with you. And everyone who stubbornly follows his own heart they say, no disaster shall come upon you. So what are these false teachers saying? Oh, you don't need to really worry about what God's word says. You don't need to worry about obedience. God's not really that interested in how you live. Just kind of follow your heart. And that's God's word to you. And what does God say? Don't listen to those prophets that say that. Okay, what does Jesus say? Matthew seven fifteen. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Okay, Is a false prophet going to show up at church with a name badge that says, Hello, my name's Wolf. <laughs> no, they're going to be in sheep's clothing. They're going to look innocent. They're going to look kind of you know, innocuous, but they are going to be ravenous wolves inwardly. Now, here's what's scary Acts chapter 20, verse 28 through 30, Paul is gathering the elders of the church in Ephesus, and he's giving them a warning to the elders, the spiritual leaders of the church. And this is what he says. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away disciples after them. Ravenous wolves will come in and try to tear up Christians. And then Paul says, even from you among the elders here, there could be some false teachers that even come up among elders. Is it possible for a church to go off the rails because the pastor and the elders go off the rails. Okay, whose responsibility is it that that doesn't happen? Are you supposed to blindly follow me because thus saith Sean Cole? I hope not. You have every right to take what I say, go home and examine it for yourself from the Bible. I don't have any problem at all if you come to a different theological conclusion than I do. But here's what you got to do. You can't say, I don't agree with you, and not give me a reason. If you come to me and say, here's my biblical reason, I've thought it out, and here's where I come down upon it, we disagree, I would say, bless you, I'm glad you went through the process, we can agree to disagree on this issue. But you can't just say, I don't believe that, or I disagree with that. Why? There's got to be a reason. So there are times in church lives where even the leaders can go off the rails and lead the church astray. Okay, Romans 16, 17 through 18. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you've been taught. Avoid them, 
For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Avoid those that are going to cause controversy, that are going to be false teachers. They're going to go after the naive with smooth talk and flattery. He says, avoid them. Now, this is a spiritual battle. Okay, this is a spiritual battle that we're in. So Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, 10 through 12, Finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So we are in a spiritual battle for truth. Satan has sent out false prophets to deceive people. And where is he going to attack? At the very heart of the Bible. So here's the point. If you can start attacking the Bible, then it's like a house of cards. Every other belief is just going to fall. Because where do you get every other belief from? The Bible. So if you begin to question the Bible, you can begin to question other things as well. So what do progressive Christianity, what does progressive Christianity believe about the Bible? Before I answer that question, let's hear what Jesus has to say in John 17, 17. Jesus says, and he's, he's praying to the Father, he says, sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. Now, Jesus could have said, your word is true, and that would be fine. But there's a lot of things that are true. I'm six foot two, is that true? Well, you have to take my word for it. Do I have blue eyes? Is that true? Am I married to Dawn? Is that true? Okay. It's true. Yeah, as far as I know, we drove in the same car here together. Okay, those are things that are true. But am I absolute truth with a capital T, the truth? No. The God's word is true, but there's a lot of things that are true. It's the truth with a capital T. So here's the question that progressive Christianity likes to struggle with. Is the Bible truth or does the Bible feel right to me? Do I obey the Bible because it's truthfulness or do I pick and choose which parts of the Bible I'm going to believe because of my personal feelings or my secular culture? Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some statements by leading progressive Christians. I told you last week I'm going to name names because I feel like it's important for you guys to know some of the names of these people. So if you come across them or you read something or you hear one of your friends or you, you come across a Facebook post or you're, you're catching something on YouTube or whatever, and, and you just need to be aware, okay? So this is a quote from a, a man named Scotty McLennan, and he wrote the book, Jesus is a Liberal, okay? <laughs> to take, that's the name of, of his book, okay? Jesus was a liberal. Here's what he says. He gives a great definition of progressive Christianity. He says this, The Bible is meant to be read largely metaphorically and allegorically rather than literally. There are many roads to the top of the spiritual mountain, and Christianity is one of them. 
We see Jesus primarily as a spiritual and ethical teacher and less about being identical with God. Living a fulfilled and ethical life here and now is more important than speculating on what happens to us after we die. And in terms of current American cultural hot-button issues, we tend to be pro-choice on abortion and in favor of gay marriage for same-sex couples. That's what his statement is about what they believe as progressive, progressive Christians. Jesus was a liberal. Okay, last week I mentioned Franciscan friar Richard Rohr. He's from New Mexico. He's popular on Oprah. He's a big-time progressive Christian guru. This is an interesting statement. He says this, If you are meditating on a Bible text, and if you see God operating at a lesser level than the best person you know, then the text is not authentic revelation. It's as simple as that. So what's he saying? The God of the Bible that like punishes people for sin, that's a mean God. So if you have a friend that's really, really nice, and you come across a passage of Scripture that's, that shows God not being as nice as your nice friend, you need to reject that part of the Bible because that's not really true. So in other words, your friend is nicer than God. That's basically what he's saying. Okay, you need to know who Nadia Boltz Weber is because she's a pastor in Denver. Okay, she's a pastor in Denver. I will say this, this is not in your notes, but um, she basically in her book... She uses a lot of foul language, but she says the Bible's not clear about S-H, okay? That's what she says in her book. The, the Bible's not clear. I'm going to be a little graphic here. So here, here's what she did. Okay, you know how it was popular back in the day for teenage girls to wear the purity rings? Like, let, true love waits and make sure you, you wait to have sex before marriage and purity. Well, she said that's a big crock. She wants all the teenage girls that have purity rings to come bring them to the altar. And she, want, she wanted to melt them in the form of, of a vagina. Okay, I'm just telling you, that's what she wanted to do. So she's from Denver, and she is very, very progressive and uses a lot of foul language. So she's right up, right up the road two hours, so... But here's what progressive Christians believe about the Bible. Okay, so this is very important. Instead of being God's inspired, authoritative book, they see it more as a collection of ancient documents, like, a, like you go to a library. And there are a bunch of library books that you have together. And so what they would say is the Bible is the ancient people's best attempt to capture God how they understood him based upon the culture around them, which was often like tribal deities and violent warfare. And so they weren't really guided by the Holy Spirit to write the Bible. They understood God based upon their cultural context, and they did their best effort at that time in history, 3,000, 4,000 years ago, to write what they knew about God. But now because we're more evolved and we understand sociologically, biologically, technologically, all these things were evolved, we can throw out a lot of the Bible because that was what it meant to them back then, but we know better now. That's kind of the attitude that they have. And so there is no absolute truth. What the Bible is, it's a collection of writings from people that tried to understand God and their culture, and sometimes they got it wrong. And we know better now. Now, there's a man named Peter Enns. 
You need to know E-N-N-S, Peter Enns. Back in the 80s, he started out as a conservative evangelical, and then he went off to Harvard, okay, Harvard. He went to Harvard Divinity School, and he became a progressive Christian. He's now professor of biblical studies at Eastern University in Pennsylvania, and this is what he wrote. He kind of captures this idea, okay? His book is called The Bible Tells Me So, Why Defending Scripture has made us unable to read it. This is what he says about the Bible. The Bible, from front to back, is the story of God told from the limited point of view of real people living in a certain place and time. The Bible is an ancient book, and we shouldn't be surprised to see it act like one. So, seeing God portrayed as a violent tribal warrior is not how God is but how he was understood to be by the ancient Israelites communing with God in their time and in their place. So we really can't trust that when Moses wrote Exodus, he was writing down what God wanted him to write down. It was, it was Moses' best attempt to capture who God was. So when God, destroyed all the Israelite, or when God destroyed all the Egyptians in the flood, that was kind of Moses looking at the nations around him and thinking about warfare, and then that God that destroyed all of his enemies... That was Moses' kind of way of understanding God. But that's not really how God is. God wouldn't punish Pharaoh and the enemies. We're we're better now. We understand that God's more loving and God would never destroy his, his enemies. Okay? So that's really kind of a slice of what progressive Christianity thinks about the Bible. Now, here's the huge question we've got to ask. Can we trust the Bible. Okay? So we're going to ask a few questions tonight. First question, what does the Bible say about itself? So if you have a Bible, or you have a phone, or you have a tablet, or you have some type of electronic device, or you, however you want to get there, let's turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3, 15 through 17. 2 Timothy, All right, I'll wait till everybody gets there, 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 17. All right, Paul's writing to Timothy, he's a young pastor, 2 Timothy 3. Yeah, 2 Timothy 3. Let's actually start in verse 14. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you've learned it, and how from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. Okay. In verse 15, when Paul talks about the sacred writings, he's referring to the Old Testament. Because the New Testament hadn't been fully written yet. So, Timothy, 
Paul says the, the Old Testament sacred writings, and let me just tell you what the Greek word is for, for writing, the same word for writings and the same word for scripture, it's the Greek word graphe. Graphite, graffiti, it means to write. So the written word, and then notice what Paul also says there in verse 16, all the written word, all the scripture. So the totality of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, the totality of it, the ESV translates it, God breathed or breathed out by God. Comes from two, so, so, so what, is this, what does it mean that the written word is breathed out by God? Two Greek words together. I'm teaching a little bit of Greek tonight. Okay. The word is, it's the only time this word really shows up in the Bible. It's theanoustos. Theos means God. Pneuma means breath. So the totality of the written scripture is breathed out by God. So what does this mean? It literally means that God breathed out his very word into the minds and hearts of the writers of scripture so that what was written down is the literal word of God down to the very last detail. Now, some translations say given by inspiration, like the Bible's inspired, I think that's kind of confusing because we kind of use that word inspired a lot of different ways, okay? For example, when Shakespeare sat down to write Romeo and Juliet, he was inspired to write a great tragedy. Or when the Lakers won the NBA championship, LeBron James was inspired, unfortunately, to lead his team to I'm not a big LeBron James fan, to, to, to lead his team to win. Or you could say Bono was inspired to write that U2 song. Um, it doesn't mean that the scriptures are inspiring or they, they make you feel good. It really means that the final product, the actual written scripture, the final product that we have, all of it from Genesis to Revelation, is the very breath of God. It's exactly what God wanted written down permanently. It comes from God himself. Now, here's the question you may be asking. How did this happen? How do we know that Moses, Peter, Paul, Matthew, Isaiah wrote what God wanted them to write down? Well, there's one passage of Scripture that kind of goes into detail as far as how. And that's in 2 Peter 1, 20-21. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They didn't just come up with this out of their minds. They were carried along by the Holy Spirit to write down what God wanted them to write down. So, the human authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Paul, Isaiah, Moses, Daniel, Jeremiah, James, the human authors were powerfully and supernaturally guided by the Holy Spirit to write the Scriptures. Somehow, and we don't know exactly how, somehow God worked in their hearts and minds to actually write down exactly what He wanted written down. So, if God 
worked in the heart and mind of a human person to write down exactly what he wanted written down, here's the, here's the next question. Would God lead that person to write down something that would not be true? Okay. Would God make sure that if he's working through human authors that the final product that's written down is what God wanted written down? Okay. So, if, you, if we believe that all the Scripture is God-breathed, and God worked through the hearts and minds of the authors to write it down exactly the way God wanted to, then here's the logical conclusion. Therefore, we must believe that the entire Bible is absolutely true without any errors. Now let's just look at a few scriptures here that talk about the nature of God. Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie... Or a son of man that he should change his mind? Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? God cannot lie. God cannot be wrong. Would God lead the New Testament writers to write down something that would be wrong? No. Psalm 12, verse 6. The words of the Lord are pure words, like silver refined in a furnace on the ground, purified seven times. And then I like Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5. This may be a good one to memorize. Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in Him. Okay. One of the biggest attacks that progressive, and we're starting to see some like conservative evangelicals, is they're starting to attack the Old Testament. How many of you find the Old Testament harder to read than the New Testament? How many of you like the Old Testament better? Because it's like stories. Okay. The Old Testament has some things that are very hard to understand. And we're not going to go into those issues, but why would God command Joshua to go in and wipe out the Canaanites? Why would God flood the entire earth? and leave just one family. There's some things that you look at that and you're like, that does not compute with how I understand God to be. And so the Old Testament becomes one of those things where, okay, we're going to attack the Old Testament first because we like Jesus and we like the things that Jesus tells us, so let's go back and let's attack the Old Testament. Okay, so here's the question. How reliable is the Old Testament? Now, I believe it's absolutely reliable and authoritative, and here's my first argument why. Jesus himself believed in the authority of the entire Scripture down to the most minute of details. Jesus himself. So if you're going to argue with the Old Testament authority, you've got to argue with Jesus. Now, I want to talk to you about a movement that happened back in around 2007, they were, it's called red-letter Christians. Anybody ever heard of red-letter Christians? Okay. okay, anybody have red letters in their Bible? The red, like, okay. There's nothing wrong with red letters. It lets you know that what Jesus said. Okay, so Shane Claiborne and Tony Campolo, one's kind of a author slash living homeless for a few years to figure out what life is like as a homeless person and, and a seminary professor, basically came out and said this. Jesus' words in red are what's really important in the Bible. If you come across any words in black that are contradictory to what Jesus says in red, you've got to reject the black. So, for example, 
Jesus said nothing about abortion. Jesus said nothing about homosexuality. He said nothing about those things, they'll say. So because they're not, those issues aren't in red letters, when you come across Paul that talks about homosexuality or you come across things in the New Testament that talk about the sanctity of life, you've got to say that that's not really what the Bible says because Jesus didn't address it. So you've got a Bible within a Bible. We can't trust the whole Bible. We can only trust the red letters. And even then, they oftentimes take Jesus out of context. So Jesus himself believed in the black letters, okay? He believed in the entirety of the Old Testament. So in Matthew 5, 17 through 18, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Now let me just stop right there. When Jesus says the law and the prophets... That's the summary statement for the Old Testament. The law and the prophets. And the writings would be like Psalm. But when Jesus says the law, the prophets, the writings, I, I, this is a whole other discussion, but the Old Testament in the Hebrew mind was divided in three categories. The law, the prophets, and the writings. So when Jesus talks about that, he's saying, I'm not here to throw out the Old Testament. I'm here to fulfill it. And heaven and earth will not pass away. Until, and not even an iota or a dot. Now, what's an iota or a dot? The iota, some people call it iota, not yoda, or grogu, or whatever type of creature you want. It's iota. This is the smallest letter in the Greek alphabet. But Jesus is probably referring to the Old Testament letters in the Hebrew language. So the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet is the yod, thus the jot. And the tittle was the smallest stroke, the vav. And so when you look at Hebrew writing, they've got these little tiny even strokes above the word or below the word. And Jesus is saying even down to the most minute little dot on that word is absolutely true. And I've come to fulfill that. So what Jesus is saying is, is that Scripture, even down to the most minute of detail, the smallest stroke of the pen, are absolutely binding and authoritative and permanent. So Jesus had the highest view of the Old Testament himself. Okay? Secondly, have you ever, have you ever heard somebody say, you know, some of those stories in the Old Testament are more like fables. Jonah wasn't really swallowed by a whale. There wasn't really a worldwide flood. Daniel wasn't really in a lion's den. Those are more allegories. Those aren't real events that happened. Have you ever heard somebody say that we just kind of take those allegorically? Well, what did Jesus have to say about Jonah? The second argument I have about the reliability of the Old Testament comes from Jesus himself. Jesus believed that Old Testament scriptures revealed actual facts of history. So facts and real people and literal events. So what did Jesus say in Matthew 12, 40 through 42? For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of Sheba, the queen of the south, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon's here. 
Does Jesus literally believe there was a man named Jonah that was swallowed by a fish? Jesus believed it. Are we going to argue with Jesus? Does he think it's a fable? Okay. Now, if you say, well, he's just being allegorical there. Jonah wasn't a real man. Who does he list next? The queen of Sheba. Was she a real person or was she allegorical? And there's two literal historical events there. He doesn't say, uh, Jesus doesn't say, oh, by the way, guys, it's an impossibility for a person to be swallowed by a fish and be in there for three days. We know this isn't scientifically possible, so let's just kind of throw out the Old Testament. Jesus just says, this is what happened. I believe it because it's God's word. Okay, here's the point of this. If Jesus himself had the highest view of the authority and reliability of the Old Testament, then as his followers, we should have the same. If it's good enough for Jesus, it should be good enough for us. Don't be smarter than Jesus. <laughs> Don't be more spiritual than Jesus. He took the Old Testament literally and authoritatively. Now, I could go on and talk about all the Old Testament prophecies that came true, over 400 of them, but we won't do that tonight. Okay, you ready? Number one, number two. Get to 400 in three weeks. Okay. One of the, I'm going to give you a little bit of history here because you need to know this. Okay? When I teach my Old Testament class, which I'm teaching right now at CCU, we talk a little bit about this. But um, one of the greatest proofs for the reliability of the Old Testament comes in the archaeological evidence found in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Anybody heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls? The Denver Museum, what was it, two summers ago, had them. And it was awesome to go look at them. They were really small. I didn't expect them to be that small. But, I mean, like, I could actually go through and read like they had this portion, of, I think it was Leviticus or Deuteronomy, and it was, it was really awesome. And of course, you know, everybody's like looking at it, and it was pretty awesome. So what are the Dead Sea Scrolls? Okay, now let me kind of give you some history. The Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in 1947. Okay, before that, before 1947, the earliest manuscripts we had of the Old Testament came from what was called the Leningrad Codex which was from 1008 A.D. Okay, so let, let, let's just talk about history here for a moment. From 1000, let's just round off to 1000. From 1000 A.D. to 1947 A.D., those of you that are good at math, how many years is that? What, 947 years? Okay, so 947, almost 1,000 years. Let's say 950 years. Okay, so from 1000 to 1947, you were translating the Old Testament into English. You were translating it into the Geneva Bible, which came first. Uh, well, you know, first of all, there was the Latin Vulgate. There's the Geneva Bible. There's, so all these Bibles are coming out. And the, what are they basing their translation of the Old Testament on? AD 1000. So from AD 1000 to 1947, all of the translations in all the languages were operating off that same codex. So in 1947, a young shepherd boy throws a rock in a cave in Qumran down by the Dead Sea and shatters a pot. And guess what they find in this shattered pot? They found copies of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Guess where they dated back to? 250 B.C. to A.D. 50. 
So how much older were the Dead Sea Scrolls than the Leningrad Leningrad Codex? 1,200 years older. Okay? So, what do you do to try to find out if the Old Testament's accurate? What would you do? You lay down the Leningrad Codex, you lay down the Dead Sea Scrolls, and you lay down the modern translations up to 1947. And what would you do? You would compare the Leningrad Codex to the Dead Sea Scrolls for that 1,000-year period, and what would you search for? You'd see if there was any changes. Because the older, the more accurate, right? If it goes further back in history to where it was written, you would look to see if it had changed over time. Okay, here's the beauty of what happened with the Dead Sea Scrolls. When you lay down the Leningrad Codex copies... It came about almost a thousand years after the Dead Sea Scrolls. You find out that there's not been any major difference. The copying process for a thousand years was meticulous and accurate. Now, only God can do that. Only God can superintend the process to make sure. Because, see, we don't have any original copies. We, I mean, we don't have any original, like the original. We just have copies. And what do you think would happen if you make a copy after copy after copy? What, what do you think would happen over time? People would start changing things, and things would be changed here, and names would be changed here. Over that whole period of time, those things weren't changed. Also, let me give you another bit of evidence. In 19, this is not in your notes, but you can just listen. In 1970, in Israel... Archaeologists found a burnt ancient scroll that was excavated from a chest in a synagogue. This scroll is considered to be even older than the Dead Sea Scrolls. It's the oldest Hebrew scroll discovered since the Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay. It was found in 1970, and they really couldn't do anything with it because it was, if they were to take it apart, if you were to take the scroll apart because it was burnt, what would happen? It would disintegrate. You wouldn't be able to see what was in there. But they knew it was older. So here's what happened in 2014 because technology. They did almost like an ultrasound. <laughs> it was like a 3D high-resolution scanning on the burnt scroll. And here's what they found. They found eight verses from the book of Leviticus. And when they compared those eight verses to the Dead Sea Scrolls and to the Leningrad Codex and to the modern translations, again, there was no difference. So this is even another find. And then there was a great archaeological discovery in Egypt that lists the stopping places of all the Israelites, where the Israelites traveled out of Egypt in Exodus. And it has a list of cities that are similar to the route on the temple wall at Karnak, Egypt, from 1504 B.C. So there's a lot of archaeological evidence so, so here's my two things about the reliability of the Old Testament. We have archaeological evidence to prove its reliability, plus Jesus believed in its reliability. Okay? All right, question number three. How reliable is the New Testament? Okay, while there are no original manuscripts in existence, so you don't, we don't have the original John that John actually wrote on the scroll, or the original Romans, we do have... 5,752 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. Now, I want you to 
do some comparison here. You may think, well, that's not very many. 5,000 copies of the New Testament, ancient manuscripts. Let's do some comparison. You guys have heard of, of the Iliad and the Odyssey? Okay, Homer's Iliad. We only have 2,200 manuscripts. And of the Odyssey, we only have 141 written around that ancient time. The Institutes by Gaius, written in the 2nd century, only has three manuscripts. The History of Rome was written in the 1st century by a guy named Paterculus. We only have one manuscript. The Jewish War by Jewish historian Josephus from the 1st century. We only have 50 manuscripts. So think about this for a moment. Out of all the ancient manuscripts that are out there, the one that has the second to most to the Bible is the Iliad, 2,000. The New Testament has double of that, almost round up to about 5,000 copies. So, the New Testament books were written around 50 A.D. to 95 A.D. That's when Revelation was written. And so, we start seeing manuscripts, that would be copies, showing up around 30 years after Revelation was written. So when was Revelation written? 95. What's 30 years later? About 120, 125 A.D. You start seeing copies showing up. Of these other ancient manuscripts, their copies start showing up two to 300 years later. And we don't have very many copies of those compared to the New Testament. So, somebody may have a problem. Okay, so we have all these copies. Why don't we have the originals? If we don't have the originals, that means that we can't trust the Bible. If I don't have the original John in my hand, I can't trust a copy. How would you answer that argument? Here's the answer. Okay, the words written in the original manuscript were God-breathed, the words, not the materials they were written on, such as a papyrus or a scroll or a parchment. In other words, we don't need the original manuscripts in order to have the original inspired words. Here's the point. When you have over 5,700 ancient documents from various geographical areas and translated into different languages, you can lay them all out and compare them side by side. Okay, so I wish I had a whiteboard. Let's say you find a document of, let's just pick, let's, what book of the Bible of the New Testament do you guys want to pick? Somebody yell a book of the New Testament out. John, okay, so... Let's say you have a copy of John from Egypt, you got a copy of John from Israel, you got a copy of John from Turkey, you got a copy of John from um, Spain, you got a copy of John from Ephesus, which is Turkey. Okay. And so one of them's maybe at 120 AD, one of them's 150 AD, some of them are written in Greek, some of them are written in Syriac, some are written in Coptic, all these different languages from all these different places, the same Gospel of John. Okay. Let's say we have 50 copies of John from all these different geographic areas, written in all these different languages. What are we going to do? We're going to lay them down side by side, and what are we going to look for? Changes, discrepancies, differences. What are we going to find? 99.9% .9 
they're all the same. With the exception of a few minor words like a and the and maybe, you know, something like that. So what you're looking for is you're looking for major discrepancies, major changes where the scribes would have changed the wording. Here's the fact. When you compare these ancient manuscripts side by side, there's about 99% accuracy between them all. Now think about the little childhood game you guys played called telephone. Remember? One person starts and they whisper something in somebody's ear and then it goes to the next person. Like 20 kids and then finally the last person says, you know, the, the first word was, I want to go build a wall. This, the last person said, there's a ton of boogers on my bed. Or, I don't know, there's something, there's boogers on, I mean, it, it gets changed in the translation. That's one sentence with 20 kids. It gets messed up just like that. This is 5,700 manuscripts written over a period of probably 200 years in different languages with 99% accuracy. Here's the bottom line about the reliability of the Bible. The Bible was written, this is the total Bible, Genesis to Revelation. It was written by 40 authors over 1,000 years. There's a consistent message, unified theology, no provable contradictions, and we have thousands of manuscript evidence. When I get into conversations with people that say they don't believe the Bible, you know what the first question I ask is? Have you read the Bible? Well, I saw this on the Discovery Channel. This is what my college professor said. No, have you read the Bible? Read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and come back and talk to me after you've read it. I find a lot of people don't want to take the time to do that. So, we must believe that the Bible's God-breathed. That's what it says about itself. It's reliable and Jesus believed in the authority of the Old Testament. Now, what are the implications? What are some of the important implications of believing this, okay? So this is the nature of Scripture. All Scriptures God breathes. So what does that mean for us? How do we practically live out our Christianity and what we believe about the Bible? This is where we get into trouble with the culture. Because what we're going to say is going to put us in the crosshairs, okay? So here, here's the first thing. We must believe that the scripture has a fixed historical meaning that transcends culture and does not change over time. What it meant a thousand years ago is what it means today. So for example, what does the Bible say about homosexual marriage, gay marriage, homosexual activity? What does the Bible say about that? It is sinful. Well, that's what they believed back then. We're not as, we've evolved more. We understand the transgender issue. We understand all these different things. And so we know that that's not what the Bible means now. That's what it meant back then. Can you play that game? The point is, it's got a fixed meaning. Whatever it meant back then, it means today. Okay? Let me give you another example here. Secondly. We must believe that the Bible is the supreme and final authority on all matters of faith and practice. The final authority. Um, it means that all the words in the Bible are God's words, 
in such a way that to disobey or not believe any word of Scripture is to disobey and not believe God himself. Okay, here's where the rubber meets the road. You'll have people say, I believe the Bible's God's word. I even believe there's no errors in God's Bible. I even believe we're supposed to, to live by the Bible. But don't you dare tell me I have to live under its authority. It doesn't have the right to tell me what to do. You see a lot of people that have that. No, the Bible is the final authority. Is there any higher authority than the Bible? What if somebody comes to you and says, well, I just don't think that's right. I'm just following my heart, and I, and I, don't, I don't feel like that's what the Bible says. Isaiah 66, 1 through 2, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What is the house that you built for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. This is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. Okay, so let's just stop for a moment. What happens in our culture if you say, I believe in the authority of the Bible? It's absolutely true. I can be certain about it. And it is God's word to be obeyed. What do people, how do people respond to you? That's good for you. I don't necessarily buy it. I think the Bible has mistakes. I think the Bible's an archaic book. It's like a library book, and it, you know, it has some good things to say about God, but overall, it can't be trusted. Let me just ask you a question. Do you think, let's, talk, let's, let's make two categories. First category, do you think, this is an easy, the first one's an easy question, the second one's maybe harder. Do you think, in the general world out there, not in the Christian world, but in the general world out there, most people don't accept the authority of the Bible. What do you think? Okay, it's a pretty easy question. Now let's make, it, let's make it a different question. Within the church, Christianity at large, the broadly evangelical, what do you think most people's view of the Bible is? You think it's the same? Wow. Do you think a lot of people give lip service to the authority of the Bible, but they don't live under its authority? I'm seeing Connie, what are you saying? You think it's the progressive view? Right? Okay, yeah. So you think it's more the progressive view, even among people that would claim to be Christian? Okay. Now, okay, so satiety has told us we're intolerant if we say there is an absolute fixed meaning of Scripture, there's absolute truth. How, how can you believe this? So we've kind of been conditioned from an early age to, to grow up in that attitude. So a lot of you may have different opinions about this, but let me just ask you a question. Does it concern you that those who profess to be Christians have a low view of the Bible? Let's not pick on the big bad world out there because they don't know any better. Okay, they're not saved yet. They, they, they haven't been changed by the Holy Spirit. They haven't, been, they haven't 
you know, receive Christ as Savior, their eyes haven't been opened. But for someone to claim to be a Christian, is it of highest importance for them to, to believe in the authority of the Bible? And do you think a lot of people don't? Or do you think people like to pick and choose which parts of the Bible they want to believe? I used to call it, it's kind of like, okay, some of you have Spotify and Apple Music and Amazon Music. What can you create? A playlist. In the old days, back when they had those things called record albums, some of you remember record albums, and then some of you remember when CDs came out, or tapes, record albums, tapes, to CDs. And Okay, so in the old days, so like if you wanted, I, I remember I was so excited for, in, in, in my, fifth, my fifth grade birthday, this is going to date me, fifth grade birthday, my aunt got me Def Leppard's Pyromania on album. And I was so excited, and I just played that till it like scratched. But back then, you had to buy the whole album. You couldn't just like listen to one song, you had to buy the whole album. Okay, a tape, remember what you had to do with the tape? You had to turn it over if you wanted to listen to the second side. And then some of you remember the old days, when, what, what happened? you had to have your handy-dandy pencil, because what happens when your tape got all messed up, and then you had to get the little scotch tape to tape it back together and spool it back together, and you always had that really dumb tape recorder that ate your tapes, and you were so upset. Sometimes I'd tape off the radio if there was like a song that I didn't want to go buy. I'd tape it off the radio and get half of it, and then Casey Kasem's voice would come on, American Top 40, and it'd be like over, playing over your song. Okay, then, then you could go buy the CD, but then you had to click past... It was a little bit easier, because what could you do there? You could select which track. Okay. Now what can you do? I want this song, this song, this song, this song, this song, and I get to create my own playlist. I get to create my own everything. I get to pick and choose what genre, what artist. I can put it in whatever order. I can do random play. I'm totally in charge of how I want my music. Now, how do people treat religion or the Bible? I'm not going to take the whole Bible because I don't like some parts in it. So I'm going to pick this part, I'm going to pick this part, I'm going to pick this part, this part I like, this part I like, this part I don't like. I'm going to leave it over there. And I'm going to create my own playlist that suits me. And I'll follow my playlist, which I think is what the Bible is. Now, when you do that, who's the authority? You become the authority of what the Bible is because you've chosen which parts you want to accept. Versus the Bible having an authority over you where you submit to its authority. Now, we're not worshiping the Bible. Some people say, you guys worship the Bible. No, we're worshiping God who gave us his Bible. I'll tell you guys a funny story. There's a lady that came to our church. She's a good friend. She's moved on to a different town. Um, she lives on the front range. But she came, I'm not sure what church this was in town, but she came from another church in town. And she came to our new members class. And um, she said after the fact, she's like, I was really nervous coming to Emmanuel because all my friends told me how scary you were and how this church, I need to, we need to really watch out for Emmanuel Baptist Church and you need to be very careful when you go to Emmanuel Baptist Church and there's some red flags about Emmanuel Baptist Church and you just need to really be really on your guard when you go to Emmanuel Baptist Church. And I thought, what in the world? <laughs> What's wrong with our church that, that she's saying this? And I said, well, what was the issue that she had? And she started laughing. She goes, well, what she told me is that church really believes the Bible. I mean, they really believe the Bible. 
You got to watch out for that church because they really believe the Bible. I'm like, okay, good. I'll take that. <laughs> That's a good thing. But see, there's a lot of people out there that just don't want to submit to the authority of the Bible. So the progressive view, the attack of the progressives is we can't trust the Bible's true. We're not going to throw out the Bible because we like some of the things it teaches. We're going to allegorize it and make some of those Old Testament stories more like fables, more like stories. We're going to pick and choose which parts we like, and we're going to kind of understand the Bible as evolving over time, and we're kind of the authority over it. That's the attack from the progressive viewpoint. Okay. Before we move on to the second attack, are there any questions on this, this attack, the progressive Christian attack? Any questions? All right. We're going to get to Andy Stanley, so wait. We're going to get to Andy Stanley here in a minute. You want to wait? Okay. You preempted me there, Jerry. That's all right. Told you I'm taking names and taking no prisoners. No, I'm just joking. All right, so the other big issue that we've got to believe about the Bible is that the Bible alone is sufficient. This is, the, this is another issue. It's sufficient for growth and godliness and life together. Okay. Not only is the Bible authoritative, not only is it God's word, not only does it not include any errors, but it's sufficient, meaning it's the only source we need for life for church life, for godliness, for faith. So, you should still have your Bible open, open to 2 Timothy, hopefully. I didn't tell you guys to turn anywhere else. Um, so, we're going to go into verse 17. So, let's go chapter 3, verse 16. All Scripture, okay, the totality of the written Scripture, is breathed out by God. It's God's actual word. Okay, and it is profitable profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Profitable. That word means it's useful. It's advantageous. It's beneficial. It's valuable. God has given us everything we need in the written scriptures to understand truth, to correct us, to be the final authority, to tell us how to live the Christian life, to understand our beliefs, for, for faith and practice. So it's profitable. And that the man of God, this is verse 17, that the man of God may be complete. That means capable, proficient, qualified. The Bible is going to make you proficient. It's going to make you qualified. It's going it's to train you to understand truth so that you may be equipped for every good work. So, because Scripture is sufficient from Genesis to Revelation, are we to add anything to it or subtract anything from it? Can we add to it? Can we subtract from it? Okay, how does the book of Revelation end? Revelation 22, 18 through 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book... If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this 
book. It's a pretty strong warning. So when you pick and choose, you know, you, do you guys know what Thomas Jefferson did? I mean, he was a great founding father, and he was a great leader of our country. But do you, have you ever, did you know what he did? He took scissors and cut out the parts of the Bible he didn't like and created his own Bible based upon what he thought was really true. So even going way back to Thomas Jefferson, there have been people that said, I don't quite like what the Bible says here, so I'm just going to take my scissors out and cut out things that I don't like. Now, not to pick on Thomas Jefferson, but that's the height of arrogance, because what are you basically saying? I know better than God what is true. Okay? Now, here's attack number two. If the first attack was the progressive view, progressive Christianity, the Bible is fables, it's not quite true, it's an archaic old book that we, we've evolved and there's not a fixed historical meaning. Attack number two is within our tribe. It's conservative, Bible-believing evangelicals. They deny the sufficiency of Scripture by giving into what I would call pragmatism. Now, what is pragmatism? Pragmatism says, I'm going to look for what works and gets results, even if it means it's not in the Bible, or the Bible gives me clear instructions on how to do church life or how to raise my children or how to do this. I'm going to look. The Bible's good for what it says, but I need to go elsewhere and find something that's really going to work to get the results because the Bible alone is just not doing it for me. Yeah, I believe the Bible, and the Bible is good for what it is, but we've got to go find something that's going to give us results. Okay? So Psalm 11, 1 through 3. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. And here's the, here's the thing. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Here's a question. Is it, it seems like it's getting hot in here. Tarina, do you, know, do you want to just turn off the heat? Do you want to just turn, do you know how to turn it off? Just hit temporarily not occupied on the, on the, on the, um, on the, no, on the sanctuary one. It's labeled sanctuary, the two middle ones. Yeah, left worship, right worship. On the bottom right-hand corner, it should say temporarily not occupied. That'll turn everything off. So hit the button temporarily not occupied. And then hit the other one temporarily not occupied. And it should stop blowing heat in here. Does it say up on the screen temporarily not occupied? Not occupied. Okay, it may take a few moments. but You guys are like fanning and... It's like a sauna in here. I'm sorry. I didn't want to turn on the air conditioning, but it's like, you guys are like, uh, and I know like when you're teaching a class and everybody's like, I really like to hear what he says, but I'm about to fall asleep. And so I, I get it. So what well, well, doesn't bother you? The found, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Just meditate on that verse for a moment. In our nation, in our churches, in your families, if the foundation's destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
So what's the importance there? To make sure you have a solid foundation. And what's our solid foundation? The Bible, the scriptures. If you don't have that solid foundation in your life, in your family, in your church, in your nation, everything else is going to crumble. Now, what does a denial of the sufficiency of Scripture look like practically. So I'm talking here, we're moving outside of picking on progressive Christians that deny the authority of the Bible to picking on people like us who do believe in the authority of the Bible, but they would say, yeah, I think the Bible's good as far as it goes, but I'm going to try some other techniques or I'm going to try some other things to get results because doing the, way, the things the way the Bible says is just, it's maybe not as flashy or sexy and it may take a lot longer. Does that, does that make sense? So how does this practically look? Okay, so first, and I'm not going to name names until we get down to somebody here. So first, instead of expositional preaching, a pastor focuses on felt needs in order to entertain church members. Now, there's a lot of baggage in that statement. First of all, you may be like, what's expositional preaching? I'm assuming you know what that means. Expositional preaching is what I do every Sunday. Some people call it verse by verse. I don't necessarily call it that because I don't think you necessarily have to go verse by verse, but it's taking a passage of Scripture and exposing to the congregation what it means. You explain it, you apply it, you let the Scripture drive what you're teaching, what you're preaching, okay? Even if it's hard, okay? And usually you go consecutive, so you can't skip over. Like, there's been some Sundays I get to a passage of Scripture like, I don't really want to preach this. Well, Sean, you can't do that because, number one, the congregation would be like, oh, you skipped over that, you wimp. How come you didn't want to deal with it? And then part of me is like, I don't want to do the work to try to figure out how to preach this, and maybe this steps on my own toes. So expositional preaching means you preach the whole Bible whether it steps on toes or not. Now, some preachers would say, yeah, we should preach the Bible, but what's really as important is to make sure that the customers keep coming back so let me entertain them with felt needs. Let me kind of pull on the therapeutic heartstrings here. Let me focus more upon a therapeutic culture. Let me focus more on self-realization. I'm not going to talk about sin. I'm not going to talk about God's holiness. I'm not going to talk about repentance. I just want when people come to church. I just want them to leave feeling good about themselves. So I may be more like a motivational teacher. And I'm never going to step on toes. I'm never going to address sin. I'm never going to let the Bible do its work of, ex of exposing that. I'm just going to focus more on trying to either entertain, help you become a better you. This is kind of, and I hate to mention names here, but I guess I will. Um, this is kind of like Joel Osteen, the Joel Osteen type um, I'll preach from the Bible. This is my Bible. I will hold it up. And for the rest of the sermon, I'll never refer to it. No, I'm just joking. That's, um, I'm, just, I'm not trying to pick on him. But you know, there's some pastors out there that are like, they will hold a Bible. They will open a Bible. They may read a Bible verse. But ultimately, their goal is to make you feel better about yourself as opposed to telling you what you need to hear. Okay? Now, go down. In, we looked at this last week, so you've got your Bible open to 2 Timothy chapter, chapter 3. Now keep going down. What have we just looked at in context? The importance of Scripture, right? It's God-breathed. It's authoritative. 
It's profitable. It helps the pastor be complete, equipped. So let's just keep reading into chapter 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, preach the word. Now, what's the word that you're supposed to preach? Back up to verse 16, all scripture. You can't pick and choose which parts you're going to preach. You've got to preach all of it. Be ready in season and out of season, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So a pragmatic approach to the Bible would be, I believe it's true. I believe it's God's word. I believe it's error-free. But if I preach that, people are going to get uncomfortable. It's going to step on toes. So let me find verses that make people feel happy. Or let me not ever address sin. And let me just try to find parts in the Bible that make people feel good about themselves. So they're not denying the Bible, right? They're just saying, I don't trust the Bible to do what it needs to do. I've got to sidestep it in some ways. So they're denying the sufficiency of Scripture in their preaching. Okay, here's a second way. Instead of relying on biblical principles for how to do church, a pastor focuses on business and marketing strategies from the latest secular leadership books and seminars. The church runs like a business. The pastor's a CEO. There's customers that have got it. This is, no, this is nothing about CEOs or companies or things like that. I'm not against that at all. But that's not really the way a church should operate. Okay. As a pastor, am I a chief executive officer? You're fired. <laughs> no, I'm a pastor shepherd. And so sometimes, I can't tell you guys, going all the way back to the mid-90s, I can't tell you how many books I've read in seminary, how many people at conferences I've gone to where they bring in some guru that's helped turn a company around or somebody that's this hotshot business person, which is nothing wrong with that, but they come in and tell you this is how you need to run your church. And they'll sprinkle a few Bible verses in there, but it's mainly based upon secular marketing and business, which is no, there's nothing wrong with that at all. Especially if you have a business, you need, to, you need to know how to how to run your business. But when they bring that into the church, they say, the Bible doesn't really tell you how to run a church. The Bible doesn't really tell you how you should operate. The Bible doesn't tell you about leadership. What, the, what you need is to go outside the Bible and find these leadership principles from the business world and bring them into the church. I feel very strongly about this because I wrote my doctoral dissertation on leading through preaching. How does a pastor lead? Through teaching and preaching. So that's one way that you'd say, I don't deny the Bible. I just don't think it's sufficient enough to tell us how to do church life. I got to go outside and rely on marketing techniques. Okay. All right. Here's another one. Instead of discipling the younger generation through like catechism or training, parental leadership. Uh, many churches are using gimmicky techniques to get children to make a decision for Christ. 
I've told you the story before, haven't I, about the VBS? So this one church had a vacation Bible school, and at the end of the week, they had a bucket at the front that said heaven, and it was all nice and beautiful. They had another bucket that said hell, and it had smoke coming out of it, and they gave every kid a little ticket, and they said, okay, let's get real serious, boys and girls. How many of you want to go to hell? Nobody wants to go to hell, do they? Except for little Johnny Satanist. He's saying, yeah, I want to go to hell. No, who, who wants to go to hell? Nobody wants to go. Who wants to go to heaven? Who wants to go? If you want to go to heaven and not go to hell, you come up and put your ticket in the bucket. Now, how many kids are going to go to the hell bucket? Maybe Johnny Satanist that showed up that day. But all the kids are going to do what? They're going to go to the, the heaven bucket. And so what does the pastor say? Fifty kids got saved today at Vacation Bible School because they put the ticket in the heaven bucket. You give me ten kids in a room, I can get them all saved ten times probably because they're impressionable. You can talk kids into anything. So sometimes instead of saying, okay, parents, you need to do the hard work of teaching your children, raising your children, training your children. We're going to really disciple our children. Some churches get into gimmicks to try to get decisions for Christ. Here's a startling statistic. In 2013, this is in our own denomination, baptisms have been on a 60, well, maybe like a 50-year decline in baptisms compared to how they were 50 years ago. And so our mission board of the North American Mission Board in 2014, they did a study, and the only consistently growing group of baptisms in the past 12 years. What group do you think is the, gro- the, the fastest growing group of baptisms in the past 12 years in our denomination? What, gra- what age group do you think it is? Five and under. The preschool age saw a 96% increase from 1974 to 2010. In other words, Southern Baptist churches are baptizing four- and five-year-olds to inflate their numbers to make it sound like we've got all these baptisms. Now, I'm not legalistic on the age of baptism, but I've never baptized a five-year-old or even a seven-year-old. Maybe an eight- or nine-year-old, depending on if they fully understand the gospel. But when you say, you know what? We've got to look good to other churches to show that we've got all these baptisms, we've got all these numbers, we've got all these people getting saved, and so we're going to do all these gimmicky things to get five-year-olds to say the sinner's prayer and baptize them so we can inflate our numbers. That's where you're not trusting in the sufficiency of the Bible. You believe the Bible, but you're going to try all these different gimmicks. Um, one church did a, like when they baptized their kids, they actually put a water slide in their baptistry and when they came out, it splashed confetti all over the congregation every time. So what kid's not going to want to get baptized when they get to do that? I want to do that, Mommy. Let's load up all the five-year-olds and get them baptized that Sunday. We baptized 10,000 kids this past year. Here's an interesting statistic, okay? Listen to this. Okay, Saddleback Church in California, one of the largest churches in America. Okay, Saddleback, Rick Warren's church. They've been on lockdown in California. They have not met in person yet since the lockdown. You know how many baptisms they quote-unquote report they've had last year? 16,000. 
Now, how can you, I'm not questioning, how can you have 16,000 baptisms when you've never even met for church? So it's like, hmm, that's a pragmatism. Okay? We'll talk about this as we get further down the road, but I'm just going to introduce it now because this is a really, really hot topic that's got a lot of nuance and a lot of things that we need to talk about. But fourth, instead of adhering to what the Bible says about how to understand sin in our culture, especially like racism or injustice, a pastor uses secular tools such as critical race theory, intersectionality to address racial issues. We'll talk about that. That's the sixth issue we're going to get to, social justice and the issues of, of, of how to deal with those issues based upon what the Bible says, not necessarily what culture says. Now, here's what we're going to talk about Andy Stanley, okay, Jerry? Here's the fifth one. And this kind of goes back to what we talked about earlier. This is, this is where, like last week I said, Andy Stanley is on that slippery slope, okay? Like he's not a progressive Christian, but he's not kind of over where we are. It's kind of like, where's he going? It's like, only time will tell. Fifth, instead of relying on the entire Bible as our authority, some pastors are encouraging believers to distance themselves from the Old Testament because it's a barrier for modern people to come to faith. Key verbiage I've used there. Distance yourself from the Old Testament. Don't throw it out because it's still the Bible and we have to believe the Bible. But what they're saying is, Man, this younger generation is so put off by the God of the Old Testament. It's probably better not to even bring up the Old Testament because it's just going to bring too many barriers for people coming to faith. So don't really talk about the Old Testament at all. So Andy Stanley, in his book, Irresistible, Reclaiming the, new, the News That Jesus Unleashed for the World, says this. This is kind of this mindset. Quote, We've been on the wrong track, and we need a change if we're going to reach the next generation with the gospel. What's, is this wrong track? It's that modern Christianity relies too much on the Old Testament. He says, when it comes to stumbling blocks to faith, the Old Testament is right up there at the top of the list. Okay, so we don't want to talk about the Old Testament because it's a stumbling block. And here's, what, here's how he goes even further. This is where it gets even more confusing. He says, The Ten Commandments have no authority over you, none. To be clear, thou shalt not obey the Ten Commandments. Now, you have to be a little confused by that. Do we obey the Ten Commandments in order to get saved? No. Are the Ten Commandments still binding on us as Christians as far as how we are to live? So here's my question. If you don't obey the Ten Commandments, then what's your standard? Do you, do you like, break the Ten Commandments? The Ten Commandments are still morally binding on us as God's moral will for our lives. You, you, we're not saved by them, but we're expected to obey them. Because what happens when you're saved is that God comes and writes the law in your heart and gives you the Holy Spirit that gives you the power to be able to obey. Ezekiel 36, 26-27, I will give you a new heart, a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. 
So for the Christian, the Ten Commandments is not a way to earn salvation, but instead is a rule of life and an objective standard of God's will for us. The law has now been written in our hearts through the new birth, and the Holy Spirit gives us the power to obey the Ten Commandments with joy, not as a burden to earn our salvation, but out of gratitude for our salvation. Psalm 119.32, I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. So in summary, what's the key biblical truth that we need to hold to that we're talking about tonight? Okay, the Bible is God's inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word. What's attack number one? The progressive view. The Bible's not inerrant. We cannot be certain about what it says. It brings up more questions than answers. The real issue comes in the questioning, but we can never be so dogmatic that we can be certain about absolute truth. That's attack number one. Attack number two is the pragmatic view. This is the evangelical Bible-believing conservative Christians. We agree the Bible is God's inerrant word, but it's not sufficient to answer the issues of today. We've got to pull in these other gimmicks, marketing, extra things to come in and try to get results fast because we won't trust what the Bible says about how to do church and how to live the Christian life. All right. We've got a few minutes left. Do you guys have questions, comments, or snide remarks? You have a list of people. Oh, no. Someone on YouTube said be careful. Okay. All right, let, me, let me repeat these for the Facebook group out there. Are you ready? This is from Nancy Schmidt. I'm, I'm, no, I'm sorry. This is from Nancy. I can't edit that. The Pope, Joel Osteen, T.D. Jakes, Joyce Meyer, Bill Johnson, Okay, I don't know who that is. Brian Houston, which is Hillsong. Kenneth Copeland. Jen Hatmaker. Yeah, we talked about her last week. Sarah Young. Joseph Prince. Creflo Dollar. It's a good televangelist name. I don't know who. And Benny Hinn. Yeah, I would agree with most of those. Most of those are word faith type people. And Oprah Winfrey. Okay. Um, most of those on that list are more word, faith, kind of name it, claim it, prosperity gospel preachers, um, which I'm not really addressing in this. Um, we, we probably can. I don't think there's much of a danger anymore. I don't know. You guys, this is my personal opinion. It, it may swing one way or the other. I think the bigger danger right now among the younger Christians is to adopt the progressive Christianity as opposed to go off onto the word faith, name it, claim it, prosperity. What do you guys think? Or maybe it's both equal. Yes. The progressive? Okay, women's liberation. Okay, yeah. Right. 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 Yeah, that's a good question, Connie. It's like how, like the quote-unquote barbaric activity you see in the Old Testament, how could God sanction that type of behavior 
if he's to be a loving God. And, if, and so I have to reject that, either that God or reject that account of that God as being not true. Is that kind of what you're saying? Okay. That's a big, hairy question to answer, but it's a very good question because it goes right to the heart of ethics. Like, is God just... Is God good? Why would God sanction something that's, that we would perceive as, as sinful? Um, now, raping and pillaging, God never sanctions raping or pillaging. Um, there's a, such a thing called a harem, and I can't go into all the teaching on that, but harem is basically, in Joshua, it's, it's basically God's directions to the Israelites to go in and cleanse the land. And some, some, we would say that God commanded them to commit genocide. Now, why would God do that to people that are innocent? The people weren't innocent. Okay, you have to go back and look at all the way back to the very beginning, especially the Edomites and the Moabites and these different ites. They had gotten so detestably immoral, like so bad, that they had piled up iniquity upon iniquity upon iniquity, that it wasn't like God said to Joshua, go in and kill a bunch of innocent people. It was people that had come against Israel, had polluted the land with their filth and their immorality, that God said, I've given them all these years to repent and they haven't so now's the time for me to go in and for you to displace them and sometimes they were to kill all of them other times they were to to not do that and so it doesn't answer the question for a person that may not have that worldview um, and so you kind of have to work through some of that stuff but the alternative is to throw out the old testament and say well that god's different god than what we have today and the first person to do that in her church history was a guy named Marcion, and he was a heretic. He basically said the God of the Old Testament is different than the God of the New Testament. I don't know if I answered your question to the best. I mean, that's a tough one. Yeah. Were they demon-possessed? I don't know if they were, there's enough biblical information to say they're demon-possessed. We do know their iniquity piled up over, over many years to where they'd gotten so wicked as a culture that they needed to be gotten rid of. Yes, Brent. <laughs> oh, yeah. The one thing that we take away from that, Connie, is that in the Old Testament, it was God's dealing with one nation, and there was a theocracy where God ruled them, and they had to be distinct from the nations around them. Today, as the church, we don't have the right to practice cleansing, ethnic cleansing or genocide. That's not what we do. We're called to love our enemies. Um, and so we, we, it's the same God, but we have a different way of operating now as the church so we're not sanctioned to go do that now. So, I mean, it doesn't take away the fact that it happened back then, but it's not like that's the way Christians are supposed to go live now. 
So, right. Yeah. Yeah, those are tough. Those are tough questions. Yeah, yeah. Well, with one minute left, I'm gonna pl- I'm gonna say we're gonna defer on that one. And... All right. So next week, the the third issue we're gonna talk about next week is um, Jesus is the only way of salvation, and how that's under attack. Jesus being the only way. So f- number one, it was God is the ruler and sovereign over all things. He's the creator. This week, it's the Bible is God's authoritative word. Next week, it's Jesus is the only way of salvation. Okay? All right, let's pray, and then we'll be, we'll be done. Father, this has been um, a lot of information to give out, and I, I know that brings up a lot more questions maybe. Um, but Lord, help us to realize that the, if we can take away anything from tonight, that we can trust your word, that your word is trustworthy, that we need to believe it's true that it's your actual word breathed out, that it has authority, that we live under its authority. Lord, regardless of what the culture says, regardless of how people pick and choose what parts they want to believe, Lord, help us be a people that believe in it, live under it, and Lord, that we would be teaching the younger generation uh, to follow your word, Lord. So I pray for parents and grandparents and others that are, that are raising children that are in this culture where they're hearing so many different things. Um, Lord, give parents and grandparents strength Um, and grace to be able to raise their kids in the Lord. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.